Speaking of the world being really crazy, the last time we got off, so we had that conversation about Guy Davenport, and we suggested talking about Spengler. We spent some time talking about Spengler at the end of the Davenport thing. We threw out doing Man and Technics, and we sort of gave that a shot, and it turns out that Man and Technics is a little unwieldy. It was hard for us to get our hands around it. Um, and so we talked for a while and decided to, to talk about Decline of the West, which doesn't seem like it would be a less unwieldy thing to talk about. It's a you know thousand plus page tome covering basically the entire history of human civilization, uh, at least in his mind. But we limited ourselves to the introduction. Um, and it turns out that I think that actually it is a little bit easier to get a grip on because this project is much clearer. Yeah. Tell me about your history with this book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, so I've, I've been reading Spingler for a couple of years. I studied at St. John's College. We met there, of course. And going into my first summer, a friend of mine suggested doing a summer of Spangler and just trying to march courageously as far as you can into the decline of the West before classes start up in the fall. So I started a reading group on Spangler. I'd sort of heard his name in the breeze, you know, like it was just like when you're sort of looking into intellectuals and, you know, people writing in the 20th century, these different names come up. And, and you know, Spangler was always kind of talked about not because his ideas were interesting, but because he was so weird and his book was so big and nobody really knew what to do with it. So yeah, I, I, I kind of known about him and then I was like, you know what, I'm going to actually set myself to reading as much of this as I can. So I got two of my friends together, other students in the St. John's College Graduate Institute. And we read probably up through like chapter six. And I can still remember what it was like encountering the introduction to this book for the first time. Um, I had already been really, really interested in thinking about uh, the history of ideas and thinking about, you know, what actually is history, right? How do we think about history? What is the shape of it? What, um, how are we supposed to wrap our minds around something as bizarre as the passing of time and like the, the you know, the uh, seemingly bottomless sediment of, of human civilization? And then you come across the introduction to Decline of the West and what you find is that this guy is just dumbstruck by all of the exact same things that I've been looking at and, and sort of puzzling over and wondering about. So yeah, you know, we, I never finished it. I got like, you know, we got a couple hundred pages in. I think all of us were like totally thrilled about it. And then classes started in the fall and we all had to kind of put it down. But I've returned to this text um, a handful of times. And, you know, I've, re I've read beyond this one, you know, both of us have read, have read Man and Technics. I've read a couple of his other sort of later books. Um, he's got a book called Hour of Decision, which is his attempt at engaging with German nationalism in the 1930s. I think what, one of the things that's kind of clear up, I think, right out of the gate is that Spengler was definitely a nationalist. And as unsavory as his politics were, he was never an enthusiastic national socialist. Never a national socialist at all, as far as I can tell. Yeah, he was never a member of the party. He cast his vote probably for Hitler, but... Our decision specifically was a book that he wrote to try and steer the German nationalist movement away from the kinds of things that he thought were ridiculous. He, you know, he, he explicitly says that he calls it third Reichism, this sort of mythological vision of German greatness he thought was totally ludicrous. He detested anti-Semitism. He, um, and you know, you come across this in, in Decline of the West. He thinks that the the Hebraic culture, the the Magian civilization, is something. Uh, incredibly beautiful and inspiring. Yeah, I mean, my, so I, I, I was exposed to Spengler kind of in name and in really, you know, low fidelity 
broad strokes and kind of the like the righty circles. I came up in, in like the late aughts, um, and then when I kind of left that world, I never ended up reading them because I never. I sort of associated with names like Evola and stuff like that, but as it turns out, his 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 thesis is almost like his his sort of core commitments are almost the exact opposites of a guy like Evola's. Certainly a reactionary thinker, but an extraordinarily interesting and idiosyncratic one. And yeah, it was you had read me some passages where he's sort of uh, talking about art, and that's what would be three years ago or so, and that's what got me on board. I uh, became very enthusiastic about him through you. Yeah, come to think that I think that it was the stuff on art that was like the thing that really sold me on Spangler, like all of the, and we'll, you know, we're, we'll get into like, you know, the, the main arguments in a second, but like all that stuff aside, like Spangler showed me a way of looking at the world that I had never encountered anywhere else, yeah. which is maybe a result of my bad education. I have no idea. But like when he writes about like, you know, looking at certain uh, architectural features of buildings or like looking at Gothic churches and looking at the Egyptian sculptures and so on and so forth. I mean, I was just, I was just boggled by the the way that he was able to think about the kinds of things that different cultures have made in a way that was deeply charitable to them and always kind always operating on this this um sort of fundamental mood of being awestruck by all of it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. then moving on past that, right? Like not it's not just being awestruck, but it's also sort of he's he he's a man really trying to understand things and i think yeah. even if he's wrong his his deep commitment to understanding is very inspirational yeah yeah he wants to see it and he wants you to see it too and he wants what he wants what he wants you to see is like the the sense of space and time implicit in a work of art and things like that which mm -hmm. is yeah it's it's not often you come across kind of really penetrating writing like that i mean one of the things that one of the things that struck me right out of the gate so you know, this book has two prefaces um, before you get to the introduction. And in the, you know, the, the first preface is the preface to this re to this revised edition. So I guess he releases a, this, this edition of Decline of the West in something like 1920 or 1919, I think is when the first one was published. It was 1919. Um, 1919. Um, so he, he publishes it then, and all of these people get a hold of it. And then a bunch of them send him criticisms, and they say this or that thing was wrong, so on and so forth. And so he... In, in addition to the preface of the, to the first edition, which is also published in the edition that, that we read, he has this, re, this preface of the revised edition, which is a way of saying, all right, I was probably wrong about a handful of facts. However, the general shape of my thinking is pretty sound, I think. And that, you know, yet again, I insist that this was just the beginning of a project that's going to require some time to work out, so on and so forth. But he also, I was really struck by this line. Um, he says... This work is intuitive and depictive through and through, written in a language which, which seeks to present objects and relations illustratively instead of offering an army of ranked concepts. It addresses itself solely to readers who are capable of living themselves into the word sounds and pictures as they read. Difficult this undoubtedly is, particularly as our awe in the face of mystery, the respect that Goethe felt, denies us the satisfaction of thinking that dissections are the same as penetrations. <laughs> So he's trying to help, right? I, I, I love his, his sense for style really comes through yeah. in the entirety of the book, right? Like he's, he's, he's a masterful stylist, I think. I, I'm not sure anybody could really disagree with that. He tells us that he takes his stylistic cues from, from Nietzsche, right? Mm -hmm. Like not, he's, he's a, not a historian in the, in the scholarly mode, right? He's a, he's a historian with a hammer or something like that. 
Yeah, he says, is it in the is it in the preface where he says that everything I got from I got yeah here it is. I feel urged to name once more those to whom I owe practically everything, Goethe and Nietzsche. Goethe gave me method, Nietzsche the questioning faculty. And if I were asked to find a formula for my relation to the latter, I would say that I had made of his outlook an overlook. That's a very interesting turn of phrase, and I'm not 100% sure I understand what it means, but I think it's something like, right, he's, well, I don't know, how do you read it? I, I, get, I don't know enough about Nietzsche's use of this word Ausblick, right? That's the thing that uh, that Spengler is grabbing. But I guess the sense is that, right, Nietzsche Nietzsche doesn't write in the, with the same kind of perspective that Spengler is writing with. We should get into the we should get into the argument because I think I think it's impossible for me to sure. to talk about this without sort of like laying out the general scope of the book. Do you want to take a stab at it? What, sure. is, what is Spengler trying to do here? Well, in the preface, what he says that he's doing is he's trying to formulate the the only philosophy available to us us being the the people of this juncture of history or something like that and what it turns out to be is it's 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 something like it's a natural philosophy is what he calls it it's a a way of understanding the unfolding of cultures or civilizations which are the the that the beings that populate history and this is juxtaposed with it's a, it ends up being the study of destiny, right? As opposed to the study of mere cause and effect, um, which is which is what sort of ordinary natural philosophy does. It's the study of destiny, and it it his formulation is that it's it's a he's going to overturn early medieval modern periodization of history, and he's going to overturn Eurocentrism and presentism, and he's going to affect a Copernican revolution in history. Where we begin, to, we will finally be able to see the great civilizations of the world as worlds unto themselves, rather than simply like revolving around uh, modern Europe or or pointing towards modern Europe or culminating in modern Europe. That's that's the sort of thrust of it. It seems to me. So part of this is that he wants to say that cultures are, in a very real sense, a kind of super organism, right? That that there's a logic to history, and the logic to history is, is is effectively biological. That the cultures, which are the the things that allow for history to exist at all, have a life cycle. Right. And if we are able to comprehend the life cycle of cultures, then we can, much like we can when we look at the life cycle of a dog or a fish or whatever, we can understand the kinds of things that are happening inside of that creature as it ages. What yeah. this allows us to do is to do things like predict the future, right? This is going to be become basically a, 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 a way of doing a kind of scientific form of prophecy. If we can recognize the shape and structure of the culture that we inhabit, then we can understand basically where it's going to be going, what its life cycle is going to result in, so on and so forth. Yeah, he has this really wonderful remark. He's talking about the arts, right? And that, like, ordinarily, a history of the arts sort of begins with whatever cave art. A history of painting begins with cave art and ends with the Impressionist or whatever. And it's, it's never occurred to anyone until now to think of the arts as, uh, as like, discrete phenomena, right? That, like, cave painting is a, is a discrete phenomenon, and it, it lives and it dies. And it's not leading to some other thing. And, 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 and he says something to the effect of like, no one looking at a caterpillar sort of growing and developing would expect it to, to continue on doing that 
uh, for years to come, right? Um, so he has this this sense of like it's just insane to think of this as all continuous, right? These are these are forms that come into being and pass away because it, because that's the way of organic things, right? And whether it's a big thing or a small thing, organic things sort of come into being and show something forth and pass away. And there are forms that come into being within a culture, right? So one of the things he he wants to address about painting and 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 this this turns out to be the case for everything, right? That that just like an organism has organs, a culture has organs, and those organs are things like art and philosophy and mathematics. The shape of thinking that takes place within an within an organism is peculiar to that to that culture, such that Western mathematics and the mathematics of the classical world, right? He takes Greece and Rome to basically constitute a single culture at different phases of its life. That the mathematics that happens in between these two things is not one thing called mathematics. It is that there's a classical mathematics that is genuinely 100% authentically true for the classical world and for the people who inhabit it. And then there's a different form of mathematics that isn't a development from the classical mathematics, but is a deviation from, it is morphologically different. It's like comparing a uh, two ty- two kinds of fruit, right? Like they are they're both products of trees, they're both products of cultures. But to suggest that Western mathematics, which is built on things like understanding numbers as functions rather than understanding numbers as mere magnitudes, as the classical mind takes it, to think that these things are somehow related to each other sequentially, that classical mathematics developed into Western mathematics is totally mythical. Yeah, and and furthermore, the mathematics of a civilization and its uh, governance and its and its visual arts are all uh, showing forth the same thing that's undergirding all of them. Right, they're operating according to the same kind of logic. They're playing out the same destiny. And that destiny, it's in development, right? So, at a certain point, the classical soul breeds forth Euclid, right? And Euclid kind of is the guy that systematizes classical mathematics for a period of time, but then all these other guys come along and change it a little bit, but like the basic features of it remain the same because those basic features are basically the expressions of the kind of unchangeable, permanent symbology of that culture. So within a, within within the lifespan of a culture, like the philosophy or the mathematics or the art will change a little bit, but it will basically remain stable while in development. And yeah. that's the same for us, right? That we... That for us, you know, we have these, we have this sort of periodization of philosophy that whenever, whenever the West comes into existence, he wants to put it somewhere in some, what is it like the, the sort of like um, early middle ages, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so starting in the early middle ages, this thing called the West kind of pops into the world and then it's forms that constitute it, it's already so on and so forth, start to unfold, start to develop. The early years are Gothic, the late years are Baroque. And then, of course, uh, one of the, these organisms are only cultures for a period of time. And he, he has this really curious thing. I, I think this is one of, the, one of the more interesting features of his, of his thinking, is that cultures become civilizations. And they become civilizations precisely at the point they start to die. So a culture yeah. is something that's alive and it's flourishing and it's growing. And then once that organism starts to enter its death phase... The time when everything starts to calcify, its body yeah. starts to shut down. You know, the old dog's about to go out to pasture. It becomes right. what's called civilization, right? 
Yeah, and calcification's then, a good word, right? Because it's like it's like it hardens over. It becomes like pragmatic and interested in, in like building things and and in in you know machine power and things like that. And territory, right? That's one of the imperialism is one of the features of civilization for him. I guess one of the things that really appealed to me when I first read this is that, and we talk about this a little bit in the Davenport thing, right? Like you and I both come, you know, either come from these milieu that do this, or we, you know, we do this individually. Also, we kind of like fret of how crappy our age is or whatever, right? That um, things just seem so stupid today that, you know, academic philosophy is so pointless and, you know, like, where's the where's the genuine thinking? Why is nobody making good art? So on and so forth. And Spingler actually has an answer for this. Right. And his answer is that is not that people aren't working hard enough, but that quite simply, we just inhabit the kind of organism that is in the in the phase of of dying it's 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 body is shutting down and it doesn't allow for things like like beautiful realist art it doesn't allow for things like genuine creativity pretty much in any domain it doesn't allow for like the kinds of philosophy that you see in even in like late hellenic greece like you can't do that stuff anymore because the culture has transitioned into its civilizational phase. Everything has become deeply material. Um, he, he even says at some point that like the, that, that the between cult, right. So one of the things that he, that he does is he says, one of the ways that we can know that cultures function this way is that if you look at all these different cultures and you stop thinking in this, in these terms where like there is this global his, historical timeline that's moving in a certain direction. If you say, no, there's a history that kind of takes place within each of these cultures. You can see that there are, there are features of them that are shared between each other, mm-hmm. right? That at a certain point in time, there's like an early war that happens, right? You have like the, the Punic Wars or you've got um, the American Revolution. I'm not sure exactly what, which of these he considers to be morphologically related to each other within different cultures, but he says, no, there's like things that happen at different phases of life. And one of the things he says that happens at the late, the late life of a culture is that its philosophy becomes what he, what he calls like material ethical Mm-hmm. So late Roman culture for him is Christianized, ultimately, right? And it takes on this this deeply sort of moral character to it. And I, I guess he points out that sort of like late Indian culture becomes Buddhist. He, he, he seems as morphological related. And then for the West, the late philosophical sort of phase of the West is socialism. Right, right. And all these things are related to each other. Yeah, yeah. Such that we're um, we're contemporaries of the Hellenistic period, right? Like he uses that kind of language really strikingly that like, you know, our, our, we have these sort of contemporaries across time who are um, in the midst of the same kinds of developments, more morphological developments. I, I don't know if this is the case. I'm, I hope it is. And I think it might be the German word for contemporary is Zeitgenosse, the time comrade, <laughs> 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 which is really great. It's a great, great German word. Beautiful. Yeah. Awesome. We are yeah. time comrades with the late Hellenic period. Part of what makes his argument so, I want to say forceful, I want to say seductive, right? Because ultimately, mm-hmm. he has, he's got a, a, a mind full of all these historical facts that I simply do not share. You mm-hmm. know, I am way stupider than this guy. I don't know anything about world history. I really wish that I did such that I could sort of check what I think I know against what he knows. But um, but then he'll also say, you know what, ultimately the facts just point towards something, right? It's right. not just a mere reading of the facts is not going to tell you what's going on with history. 
I don't know. It's what what makes it so forceful is that like he's trying desperately to recognize that other cultures, we we can look at them, we can recognize their shape, we can sort of see features of them, but then ultimately he 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 wants to say that they're they're they are in their essence impenetrable to us. They're inscrutable, right. and that we are in a position like the Romans looking at the Greeks where we sort of look, we look at like China or we look at India or we look at what he calls the Magian culture, which is basically like everything that's happening in like uh, Middle East and Jerusalem and so on and so forth. And we can see things that we recognize in ourselves. But then ultimately what we end up doing is we end up projecting onto these cultures us, right? It's, it's like looking in a mirror and thinking the mirror is really us rather than being something that's totally different from us. Yeah, so so one of the things that sort of was the hook for us to, to, to move on to this book after reading that Davenport essay was that there's there's ways in which Spengler is very different in his outlook, right? That he's he he really does think that that we've run out of steam, right? There there isn't there isn't something alive for us to recover if 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 we just know how to look at it, right? But at the same time, right, he's, he's sort of like prophesying in advance, it seems to me, about this thing that Davenport is taking stock of in retrospect, right, which is that we're, we're standing at this point in history where we can, we can look on the vista of the past and see all of the discrete worlds that have come into being and, and, and see them as, as, yeah, discrete, whole, and, and rich world in and of themselves rather than just seeing them as as yeah somehow like uh contingent on us or something like that i mean it's, it seems to me that spengler when he says that he's he's formulating the last philosophy of the west or, or whatever he says like he's he really is a prophet of things like structuralist anthropology and and like he, he he's he's an avowed relativist right like he's he's formulating things that will become very commonplace in Western thinking in the coming century. Yeah, he's, he's, as far as I can tell, like one of the earliest, at least the earliest to articulate in these terms, and one of the strongest cultural relativists that's ever written anything. Yeah, yeah right, right. Like he, he, he lays the argument he's reactor, out. Right? Like he's a right winger. Yeah, no, he's, he's, he's totally on, he's like in the German right. Like he's, yeah, a friend yeah. of, he's a friend of Otto Strasser and, you know, he detests communism more than basically anything. But yeah, he, he, he lays out the, the argument for cultural and historical relativism, relativism more, I want to say, like more appealingly than anybody else I've ever come across. Yeah, yeah totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah, I mean, it's, 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 this is the interesting thing. And this is the, one of the interesting questions in the Davenport essay, it seems to me, some, or some, some, some version of it, is he is a strident relativist. And in, in the pref, one of the prefaces, he says something to the effect of like, um, any thought is just like the thinker over again or something like that. Right. It's just, all thought is just, is, is uh, my thought. And furthermore, it's the thought of, of the period and the people, right. Like it's, I'm, I'm, I'm a vessel for, for my place of birth and the circumstances of my life and my biography and things like that. And yet at the same time, he is, formulating a way of thinking which it seems is trying to liberate us from just that constraint 
right? And so there's this this broadness and this narrowness in his own description of his own project that's really puzzling to me. I Can I read the passage? Yeah, the, the passage where he talks about the, the thing. He says, this is his way of saying, um, this is in the, in the preface to the revised edition. You know, this is part of him making an excuse for, excuse for any of the limitations of his book. He says, a thinker is a person whose part it is to symbolize time according to his vision and understanding. He has no choice. He thinks as he has to think. Truth in the long run is to him the picture of the world which was, which was born at his birth. It is that which he does not invent, but rather discovers within himself. It is himself over again, his being expressed in words, the meaning of his personality formed into a doctrine which so far as concerns his life is unalterable, because truth and his life are identical. This symbolism is the one essential, the vessel in the expression of human history. The learned philosophical works that arise out of it are superfluous and only serve to swell the bulk of a professional literature. Yeah. So... That's he's sort of he's he's leaning in all the way into the parochial quality of this project, right? Can't be any other way. And this what this is is this is this is he's he's formulating the thing for the time. And it's what it turns out the the thing the his thought and the thought of the time are it, it turns out to be this like really radical attempt to. Uh, see the other for what it is and not through one's own eyes and that's just like it's an it's a very interesting very perplexing tension in the in the whole project to me one of the things that he ne he never comes out and says this entirely and i guess I, f I find it really peculiar that he doesn't is that i can only understand this book as being like both a rejection of and then ultimately the, the completion of the project of hegel's philosophy of history Right. So Hegel's philosophy of history famously, in a nutshell, is something like history begins in the East, namely in China and India, and it sets in the West, namely in Prussia, and even more specifically in the mind of Hegel. Right. right. <laughs> so and Spengler has a, has a somewhat similar idea. Right. Is that, you know, where he thinks that like where he thinks that consistent with this kind of aristocratic vision of how cultures form that, you know, that the the life of a culture can be basically um, expressed in a single person, right? Like the the uh, the early civilization phase of uh, of Rome is is at a certain point expressed in the the life of Julius Caesar. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so too do people like Aristotle express fully the life phase of a given culture better than anything else in that culture. I think that he really thinks that he's doing that for the West, yeah. that, that he, you know, he's, he's taking something that is basically like a kind, a kind of assumption and writing it into a system because nobody else has taken the time to do it. But I think he also thinks that everybody else can kind of see this already, right? Or at least, at least there are people who can kind of see this, right? He's the, the and this is the thing I puzzle over too, and I think I think this is basically sort of sharing your your trepidation that like the project is at once a critical project. He is writing kind of against a couple ways of understanding history and of thinking about philosophy and so on and so forth. Um, but he also wants to say that it's a constructive project that this is that this is ultimately what the West has been leading to, and that he's sort of completing the the philosophical trajectory of Western thought, completing the system.
Yeah, he's completing the system of German idealism. No, he, he but, but for real, like he <laughs> kind really, of. Yeah, <laughs> it's like actually his claim. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's weird too, right? That it's it's again um, so intensely biographical and so intensely parochial, and yet it's at odds with with so much of the of the of his content of contemporary thought and of historical thought, and yet. He's, I don't, it's, yeah, it's really. Yeah, what, what do we do with that, right? Like, he wants to say, on one hand, the project that he's undertaking is the only philosophy available to the West. Yeah. It's the last philosophy that the West will have. It's going to be like, after Spengler, it's done, according to Spengler. Mm-hmm. So the question in that for me is like, Okay, if if what you're doing is basically like putting a cherry on top of the already made Sunday, yeah. right? Then why does it seem like you're what you're doing is like throwing away so much of the Sunday? Yeah, right. You know, right. like like why is a pro- why is it the project has to be so so deeply critical? And he and he, you know it, even in this even in just this introduction, he does all of this all of this taking stock of like certain philosophical ideas, right? He he addresses Kant. He talks about how Kant was wrong about history because one of the major things that he wants to do is he wants to say that, um, or one of the major errors that has happened in the philosophical tradition when when considering history is that it it has been trying to think of history as if it were nature. Yeah. So so like Kant talks about the way that we have to the, the way that we apply reason to nature thinkers who have been trying to address history have been doing that exact same thing, but to history. And he wants to say, no, history is different. It's a different kind of thing. Like where nature will admit of laws and regularity and it's basically mechanical, history admits of impressions and analogies and is not mechanical at all. It's it's organic. It's like trying to apply theory to like the life of a of an animal, right? Like you can, you can have as many ideas for sort of what you think this creature is going to do as possible, but it turns out that, that the creature is always going to do something spontaneous that's going to mess it up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of one of the most bewildering elements of the introduction is because he talks about like nature as corresponding to causation, the logic of space and history as corresponding to destiny and the logic of time. And it's sort of, it, it's where he gets sort of the most, it gets the most esoteric, it seems to me, in this stuff. As you describe it, it's it's it seems quite reasonable, right? It seems quite. I mean, that seems to be obviously the case, or at least like, um, in potentially the case. It seems intuitive. It seems, you know, the way describing the application of theory to the life of an animal, of an animal or something like that. But his actual description of 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 this stuff is is like pretty weird. Yeah, can I? Can I read a little bit of, of how he writes about this? Yeah, by all means. By all means. This, this is a theme that comes up over and over again in the book. And, and actually, like, um, if you get more into Decline of the West beyond the introduction, the book is full of tables and charts and fold-out things, and it's, it's wild. And so, but so much of what he's trying to articulate is that, that nature and history are two different ways of, of, of seeing, right, quite literally. And that the kinds of things that you expect from one way of seeing – cannot work with the other way of seeing at all. So this is from the introduction. He says, 
Thus our theme, which originally comprised only the limited problem of present-day civilization, broadens itself into a new philosophy, the philosophy of the future, so far as the metaphysically exhausted soil of the West can bear such. And in any case, the only philosophy which is within the possibilities of the West European mind in its next stages. It expands into the conception of a morphology of world history, of the world as history, in contrast to the morphology of the world as nature, that hitherto has been almost the only theme of philosophy. And it reviews once again the forms and movements of the world in their depths and final significance, but this time according to an entirely different ordering which groups them, not in an ensemble picture inclusive of everything known, but in a picture of life, and presents them not as things become, but as things becoming. The world as history, conceived, viewed, and given, given form from out of its op opposite the world as nature, here is a new aspect of human existence on this earth. And there's one more thing I wanted to grab at, just sort of illustrating what he means between world as nature and world as history. Yeah, this is, this is the very last paragraph of that same section. He says, Mathematics and the principle of causality lead to a naturalistic chronology, or lead to a naturalistic chronology and the idea of destiny to a historical ordering of the phenomenal world. Both orderings, each on its own account, cover the whole world. The difference is only in the eyes by which and through which this world is realized. So on one hand, this has to do with, with a way of seeing. And it yeah. seems like there are two completely right there. They're incommensurable. You can't do them both at the same time. You can view the world as something that, that unfolds according to a logic of history, or you can view the world as something that is already rigidified in the logic of nature. One of those things is like Galileo's book of nature, which is written in language of mathematics, which you can measure and weigh and, you know, so on and so forth. It admits of number quite easily. It's, it's mechanistic. It's uh, systematizable, right? The other thing, the thing that he's really interested in is the world as history. And that seems like that, um, it's not causality, but it's destiny, right? Uh, life strives towards something. It is always trying to sort of realize itself it lives, it develops, it grows, right? And these are the two fundamental, the two fundamental, like, sort of opposites. But he, as far as I know, I, I mean, maybe maybe you can point me to something or say something about this, but as far as I know, I don't get any sense where he tells us, like, how, like, how do you choose between these two things? Or why do you choose between these two things, right? Or what makes a person choose one over the other? Well, yeah, I mean, again, one of the prefaces, he says something to the effect of, like, he caught sight of this thing. I, I sort of think that this is largely how thinking works, and I think this is how research works more often than most people would like to admit. But he, he sort of, like, caught sight of something, and then the 10-year work of compiling this project was, like, accumulating the facts required to successfully paint the picture for us, right? Well, and, and he says he says that he by the time that the Great War had broken out, which he had he he claims to have effectively predicted in the uh -huh. first edition of this book, he had already been like several years into the writing of this, and and it was like already off for publications, right? So his his claim is that he basically is a kind of modern day prophet. He saw something lying on the horizon, namely he saw the war was going to happen. He started to write about it, and then the war happened, and now it's even more urgent. Yeah, so. I hope I'm not veering too far off from your question, your area of interest here. But I'm... veering is good. <laughs> All right, let us veer. 
I'll take the permission. So when he when he talks about this as like a science of prophecy, right? When he talks about this as like this thing that lets us predict the future, in general, that that kind of language is very or that kind of objective is really off-putting to me. But his his like really kind of like intuitive, like really Nietzschean. I'm on board for it, right? But it's it's not clear to me what what it would take for me to like think. Okay, well he's cashed this thing out, right? Like I'm I'm on board for the journey, but I don't know how I would know if he's done it successfully. And one of the problems is sort of like the role of the actual details, right? Because he keeps trying to point us to them, to, I mean, he says to the, the sort of metaphysical core of the thing, that all of these things are just, all of the actualities of history are just showing forth something inward. And so what it, what it means is that in some cases, the, the details are like in this particular war, this particular moment of historical decline, of, of political decline. This, like those are are almost incidental, right? It's like the really big picture that that this way of thinking is is meant to indicate is is meant to sort of like inquire into and show the the, the inner workings of. And I I, I think I get what, I get what you mean, right? That he's he's focused on such an such a broad and like. Right, he even says at some point that what he wants us to do is adopt a perspective on the world from like the from higher than anybody has ever adopted, yeah. or something like that. And then once we sort of once we once we find ourselves in the same sort of angel like perspective, a Spengler will recognize that what he's saying is true. And yeah, I, I, I too find myself really compelled by the project. And then so there's something repulsive about what it would be to like really believe in it or something like that, right? Yeah. Um, but then, but then I, but then I, I wonder, like, I wonder what, what does he think writing this is going to do, right? Who is his audience? Who is he trying to convince? And what does he want from them? And he actually sort of says something like this, right? I'm going to read this passage from like somewhere towards the end of the introduction. He says, this lesson, I think, would be of benefit to the coming generations as showing them what is possible and therefore necessary and what is excluded from the inward potentialities of their time. Hitherto, an incredible total of intellect and power has been squandered in false directions. The West European, however historically he may think and feel, is at a certain stage of life invariably uncertain of his own direction. He gropes and feels his way, and, if unlucky in environment, he loses it. But now, at last, the work of centuries enables him to view the disposition of his own life in relation to the general culture scheme, and to test his own powers and purposes. And I can only hope that men of the new generation may be moved by this book to devote themselves to techniques instead of lyrics, the sea instead of the paintbrush, and politics instead of epistemology. Better they could not do. <laughs> right, so beyond yet again that just being a great example of, of the, the style of this book, which, uh, yeah, I, I, I will, even if there's at some point I find something in this, that I just say, you know what, Spengler's just basically wrong and, like, you know, nobody should believe him. He's utterly worth reading as a stylist. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. I find it so inspiring. But I, I can't help but think that, like, what he ultimately wants to do is, like, something therapeutic. Yeah. That, like, for guys like us who sit here and, like, you pull our hair out about how, how contemporary philosophy sucks so badly, that he's just giving us a way to say, yeah, okay, whatever. It sucks badly. Here's a here's an account we can give of why it sucks. It sucks badly simply because it's because the soil is no longer fertile for philosophy, and that what we should do is stop whining about it and instead, you know, take a clear-sighted stock of the 
the, the possibilities and necessities of our age and act accordingly. Yeah. That our age just simply does not allow for things like beautiful poetry and for you know genuine first-rate philosophy. What it allows for is wielding political power and for constructing machines and for coding really strange new computer programs. And that's the kind of activity you should devote yourself to. That seems... So one of the things we sort of talked about when we were outlining this conversation or kind of like giving or providing orienting questions and stuff like that was was addressing the sort of question of optimism and pessimism. You know, I'm, I'm not like actually sure or I wasn't I wasn't sure that Spengler is really a pessimist. Right. Because what he's showing you is that like, you know, the, the sort of vulgar Spenglerianism of the of the esoteric right wing bodybuilders on Twitter or whatever would kind of. What you see a lot is a, is, a, is an admission of the fact that they think that the end of the West is the end of the world, right? Like the decline of the West is is the end of history per se. And I think that like there's a real optimism in Spengler, which is saying that need not be the case, right? There is kind of an apocalypticism in him that has to do with technology, but he's emphatic that the West is not the world, right? But on the other hand, the quote that you just read, there's something noble about the attempt if you, if you really believe it, right, if you really believe that the soil is not fertile for poetry and philosophy anymore, I, I understand the, that there's something noble about the attempt to turn young, ma- young men away from vain pursuits. But Spengler himself really earnestly thinks that the turn away from poetry and philosophy and toward technics and politics and and the, the sort of the generation of money is a is a degeneration, right? And so, t- telling us that like our time would be better spent building machines and seeking power over people because that's what's available to us, that seems really grim to me. If you think that those that the latter things are worse than the former, yeah, he's the he's the second great accelerationist, right after <laughs> after right. Marx. Marx. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he, right. he, yeah. He, I, I think. I mean. He really seems to think that, like, that in the era of decline, just given the nature of the kinds of things that that cultures are, or civilizations, right? We're in a, we're we're civilization people. There's no question about that for for Spengler. The West has been in a civilization phase since the 1700s, and it's all just we're we're just going downhill from here. You know, he seem, he he really seems to think that like the only thing available to you, if you are a thinking person who is not a coward, is to participate fully and nobly in the decline. And that anything else would be a kind of cowardice, right? I mean, like, like Marx kind of had this, this approach, right? Marx said that given the, the nature of, of proletarianization, the kinds of things that capital does to the world, trying to continue to be like a guild craftsman is reactionary. No, you you must you must sort of allow yourself to be forced into the factory and become proletarianized, and then kind of fight the battle from within from within the class war, right? right? It's a similar kind of logic, I think, with Spengler that like that if you take seriously like what the kind of thing that he thinks history is, namely that we yeah, we're like we are we're like hairs on a giant on a giant animal, you know, like we're 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 nurtured and fed by this big culture, and this big culture is dying, and like. Just like the, the the cells of a big animal can't like act against that creature to try and hang on to life, or to hang on to the life of the whole, so too shouldn't we? Like we should just we should very simply like 
do the kinds of things that, that civilization men are able to do. But I think it's very funny, right? He says that, but then dude wrote a book. Wrote a <laughs> right. big book, you know, like he's, he's a high he's school teacher. Like, yeah, he's a high school teacher. Like he's like, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't do philosophy. Take to the sea. This guy never sailed. <laughs> he took to philosophy. But I get, but I, you know, I guess thinking charitably, he did it such that we never would have to, right? That I think he really sees himself much like much like Nietzsche did as a kind of liberator. That that this is a, 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 ultimately a liberatory project. That he's 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 sort of doing something therapeutic for people who would try desperately to do a thing that is no longer offered to them. Yeah. Um, that the way of Cato, of sort of of taking a noble stance against the inevitable, is absurd and it's and you got to do something else yeah so yeah so is that pessimistic i don't know is it, is it pessimistic to to say um is it, is, it, is it pessimistic to say that given the inevitability of things you should not fight against them i don't know i feel like he he, he breaks my categories he breaks my categories of optimism and pessimism because he really does seem to think that like the west will die and when the West dies, so too will all of the things that, that populate it, right? Western mathematics will no longer exist. Western philosophy will no longer exist. There will no, probably no longer be a thing called world history, right? The West isn't the only historical culture, but it's the only world historical culture, the only one that's been able to conceive of a thing called world history. That'll just be gone when the West dies. But other cultures, just like other creatures come into existence, other cultures will, will be born in the world somewhere, right? We have no idea where they'll be or what they'll look like. But rather than trying to, like, save ours, rather than trying to sort of conduct the sort of desperate, like, um, life support on this thing that was just, like, going to ex going to be extinguished no matter what, there are a whole host of other things that we can do. And I don't know how to classify that, that attitude, you know? So. Right. Right. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I mean, I sort of... I feel like it's kind of like the Mino, right? Like it's, it's, uh, it would be preferable for us to believe that we've seen it all on the other side of the veil and we can, we can recall it all here on earth because it'll make us more, uh, inquisitive and bold in the search. I sort of feel like it would be better for me to be a Davenportian, right? And think that my, the fastidious power of attention can let me taste however to, to whatever degree the fruits of poetry or whatever than just not thinking that if i actually think that poetry is better than technics right is, is sort of nobler than technics it might be better for me to think that right and what have i lost if that's what i think right i, I didn't get to participate in the age i don't you know like <laughs> that's not i don't i don't put a high premium on on participation in the civilization in that sense or something like that. I don't know. I, that's sort of my intuition. And, 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 and this, none of this had really occurred to me before this conversation, but I think that that's, that's sort of, that's what my gut is telling me right now. Yeah, he, he really does. I mean, this is one of the things about, about the Spangler. Like, yeah, he really, he really does put this high premium on like being, being an important actor in in history, yeah. being an important actor in your civilization, right? Yeah, well, and, and this is this is supposedly why he voted for Hitler, despite his disgust with Hitler, right? That's this is the mm -hmm. motivating principle. 
Yeah, that that Hitler is a was the historical man of his of his era, right? And I, I think that I think that you know that decision on his part to do such a thing really, you know, and 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 I don't I don't think this is like a you know sort of uh, reductio ad Hitlerum or whatever, but like I think that I think that it it, it demonstrates a really profound shortcoming yeah. in this way of thinking, right? If if the the argument is that it is it is incumbent upon thinking people to act historically, if that is a, a sort of part of your of your intellectual foundation, then you find yourself making allies with monsters, right? You find yourself being horribly compromised and doing you've, all kinds uh, of absurd things. You've shared with me some a, a bit of Heidegger's life, which sort of <laughs> demonstrates the same principle in the same circumstances. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I, well, one thing I should say is that you know, Spengler Spengler is not much read today. Spengler was very popular in his lifetime, and among his many the many people he's influenced, there's like a whole school of sort of um, philosophers of history that follow after Spengler. Um, Arnold Toynbee, the British British writer, R.G. Collingwood, um, both of those guys like take Spengler as like a starting point for this kind of way of thinking about big grand histories. Two other major readers of readers and appreciators of Spengler are Wittgenstein and Heidegger. Heidegger was so much more deeply compromised than Spengler was, I think, right? But I and, but I think that their compromise takes a very similar shape. Well, the, the exchange I was thinking of is uh, just look at his hands, right? Um, oh yeah, can that is you, the craziest can you Heidegger that? thing. It was like a letter that Heidegger had written to something. To some, oh my goodness, I wish I had this committed to memory, but. Somebody, Heidegger is like in a, in a conversation with somebody and they ask him like, how could you support that? How could you support that man, Hitler? And Heidegger says, what do you mean? Just look at his hands. Right. Right. Like there, which is something not, in the physicality of Hitler. Which, it's not an identical insight to this, to Spengler's insight. Right. But it's, it's similar. <laughs> it's not, it's not totally dissimilar either. For Spengler, it's not like, look at his hands, but more like, look at look at his spiritual hands right like look at the works that he's likely to do because he's positioned in such a way to do them yeah and i think for guys like you and i talking that way about someone right um the the just look at his hands line it's like it's a good line right it's a fiery interesting (laughs) and the fact that it's about adolf hitler is like is I don't, yeah, it's it 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 sort of poisons the whole the whole into the whole impulse. It poisons the whole way of thinking, as I see it. Yeah, yeah. I th- I find myself like I think that I think of Spengler as a le- as a kind of lesson. I think, and I think he's a more interesting lesson than Heidegger is because Heidegger, right? I mean, for all for all of Heidegger's virtues, his enthusiasm for Nazism is really damning. Yeah. Spengler. Spengler was never a, he was never, yeah, he, he wasn't a convert, right? He was never, he was never rabidly a Nazi, which makes his compromise even more, even more dismal because in the, in the position of a guy like Spengler, he could have taken the opportunity to just not comply, right? To, to, to not make a choice in any direction, to not choose to support either of the two major movements that were fighting each other in the streets in Germany at that time, the communists or the Nazis, and to say, and, and, and to fight instead for like the dignity of the human person or something. But such a thing wouldn't have even occurred to him given his crazy system. Well, it runs, it runs directly counter to his, his kind of 
the, the philosophy of life that he's trying to impart. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, you can't have something like the the fundamental dignity and the irreducible mystery of the human person because every person is ultimately just a kind of uh, their personality is is a product ultimately of of their of their culture, right? It it flows from the from the soul of their culture. Right. Right. But even beyond the sort of particular, the, 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 you know, the particular idea, right, the idea of, of like not complying with a movement mm. runs counter itself to, to the philosophy of life, right? You can't, yeah, you can't fight decline. So why would you, why would you try? So against all of this, there's this, uh, this beautiful William James quote that I came across recently that, that I found myself thinking about. This, isn't, this, uh, this was a chapter heading in one of, uh, in Zena Hitz's new book. Uh, Lost in Thought, which I highly recommend to anybody who might be listening to this, uh, an extraordinary little book. But this was a letter that, that William James had written to somebody, and I feel like it, it, it articulates something that is deeply contrary to Spengler, and something that Spengler never would have considered, and in that way I think it is one of the greatest kind of like accidental refutations of the Spenglerian project that have come across. Here's James. He says, as for me, my bed is made. I am against bigness and greatness in all their forms, and with the invisible molecular forces that work from individual to individual, stealing in through the crannies of the world like so many soft rootlets, or like the capillary oozing of water, and yet rending the hardest monuments of man's pride if you give them time. The bigger the unit you deal with, the hollower, the more brutal, the more mendacious is the life displayed. So I'm against all big organizations as such, national ones first and foremost against all big successes and big results, and in favor of the eternal forces of truth, which always work in the individual and immediately unsuccessful way, underdogs always, till history comes after they are long dead and puts them on the top. <laughs> yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah. It's gorgeous. Everything in Spengler is so grand, right? It all has to do with these with these big, huge, grand cultural features. And, um, right. And that that kind of thousand mile up perspective that sort of yeah the, the we're gonna look down at the at the entirety of the world from the highest possible vantage point it misses all this stuff right yeah, right yeah I don't want to just keep talking in circles forever but <laughs> now that I've gotten really fired up uh, against the Spenglerian disposition a point. In his favor, in 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 my estimation, it's the, one of the things that really um, grabs me about about decline is that he says that he's a natural, he's 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 devising a natural philosophy, and he does something really countercultural, right? Which is, as far as I can tell, contemporary science and philosophy of science, when 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 philosophers of science, for example, are looking for natural kinds, right? When they're looking to to, to carve nature at the joints. Got, we've grown accustomed to looking for the smallest possible thing, right? We're we're looking for a subatomic particle, right? And once we've we found the one or two particles that can can't be further reduced, once we found atoms, right? Then we'll we'll find the the kinds of things that there are, right? Which is a very modern intuition, right? That the the most primitive kind of that that like the kinds when nature puts forth kinds of things, when nature puts forth 
ver, uh, uh, kinds of things that are really kinds of things and not just sort of like folds in the fabric of being or whatever. It's going to be the most primitive kind of matter. And that runs really counter to like a lot of I mean, one of the, one of the reasons why Aristotle is interesting is because he's his intuition is exactly counter, right? Like mm-hmm. he wants yeah. to talk about the elements using the principles that he's <laughs> he's derived from thinking about animals and stuff, right? And I think that that's a really beautiful and really alien way of seeing. And and Spangler's natural kinds are are the biggest possible things on the planet, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a way in which if if you let yourself think that way, you can let yourself think of yourself as belonging to a family or belonging to a community, right? You can think of yourself as a, a part of something. And if you never let yourself think that way, if you only think in terms of discreteness, I think there's a lot of beautiful features of the world, which I think if you let yourself see them, you'll, they turn out to be real, right? Like a family is a real thing. A community is a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is kind of philosophically confused, but I'm not particularly interested in <laughs> hammering all of that out, right? I, I, it's it's just the sort of the gut intuition, right, of bigness versus smallness. I think there's virtue in seeing, in in being willing to see big things as organisms. Yeah, that's a really compelling way of approaching this, and I'm reminded that like the way I mean, some of like a lot a lot of Spengler's project is like ultimately empirical in a way right but but what he wants to say is that is that facts are never mere and any genuine fact points towards yeah. something right and, and, and so but he does a whole lot of just like looking at art and architecture and yeah. part of sort of part of the part of the i guess like when the empirical dimension of his project is something like just go to a different place and look at how they build things and look at what they make and You'll notice that if you go to an if you go to China, for instance, China never made Gothic arch. They never had Gothic architecture. They didn't build spires. They didn't right. They didn't like. They they didn't have flying flying buttresses or or these kind of balustrades, right? And and these these different features that are of our world are not shared elsewhere. Right. And then he says, so what do these features of our world mean? Right? What are they pointing to? What what are what is implied in the fact that we do things like build Gothic cathedrals? And what is implied in in the the what he says far more cave like construction of <laughs> sort of like Islamic like the the roundness of a of, of, of a mosque? Right. Right. He he gives us a method, and it's a really peculiar and and very sort of messy. And ultimately, very artistic method, right? It's not. It's not science. It's not sci- as scientific as he wants it to be, I think. But there's. A, he gives us a, a method of sort of like looking at and assessing, and then kind of like feeling the implications of like real things in the world. Yeah. And and yeah, and I, and I think that if you carry that method out, you find uh, you find yourself in a position of 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 seeing uncanny similarities, right? Like, and uncanny differences too. That. Uh, one of the ways that he wants to say that, cult- that, that, that the differences between cultures are recognizable is in the art that they make, right? Yeah. And, sim- and and he, he says like quite simply the fact that we've got that we, at a certain point in the lifespan of, of Western culture, pers- perspective emerges in painting that's unique. Yeah. Try and find it somewhere else, and it turns out you can't. Like at least as far as I've been able to discover. Yeah. 
And he and he doesn't he doesn't say it's bad that other places don't do it. He just says they don't do it, and that right. if we want to know what those other things are, we got to stop expecting to find perspective painting in them, and stop expecting that they're going to develop to it eventually. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And what it means is that you and I we're friends, and we also inhabit the same world. Right. We're not. We're not wholly. We're we're not wholly constitutive of worlds in ourselves. But, but also we share a world, right? We share a sense of what it's like to be and a set of, of feelings about the world is like. And I think that's a virtue of, I think it's it's a, a virtue of the, the core intuition. Yeah, and it's a world that, that is legible to us if we only learn how to look at it right. Yeah. I really, you know, it, we, we're limiting ourselves to the introduction and the prefaces, but he gets into some really wild stuff in the later chapters where like, he has this whole chap these chapters on macrocosm and microcosm, which is how he understands the relationship of self to world. And it turns out that individuals are worlds, but they're right. but but they're they're it's a nesting, uh, sort of nested worlds. And that the thing that makes it that makes the the creation of a macrocosmic world one that we can all move in with each other as language. It's really beautiful exactly. exposition. Yeah. It's interesting. Like this is maybe like the fifth or sixth time that I've read through this introduction. I, I find myself continually returning to Spengler. I'm, I remain deeply interested in and invested in him. Um, I think he's very sorely neglected by precisely the people who have so much to gain from reading him. And I, yeah, this is you know upon this 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 recent read through when we sort of proposed like well you know let's read let's read Decline again. I I always find myself being like. When am I going to read this and find myself not liking it? It wasn't this time. I love this book. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I love it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Even yeah. The, even the stuff I disagree with, it's like productively, it's it's, it's it's productive, right? It forces me to 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 think of in ways that are really really meaningful and really interesting. Hundred percent. Yeah, can't agree more. Can't agree more. Thanks for doing this with me. Yeah, man. I'm glad that we I'm glad that we got around to it. We'll have to find something find some other thing to to read in the near future yeah um, yeah let's talk about it. some more some more weird discussions of nature might be fun yeah well we talked about that uh pierre hadot book oh yeah nature. yeah let's do that it's staring I, at me from my shelf man i'm, I'm reading yeah. his what is ancient philosophy right now oh awesome it's so good dude <laughs> it's really good yeah he's uh <laughs> he's he's interesting it's it's like far more of like a genuine introduction to ancient philosophy than I expected it to be right now. It's very like approachable and readable. And it, it, it makes me really, it makes me really eager to read something that I think is going to be far weirder, namely the essay on nature. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's, uh, I've, I've started it two or three times. Um, and I'm, oh, man. so let's, let's do it. I think this entire, this entire conversation series we're going to be doing is going to be stuff that we've, that at least one of us has tried to read like four or five times. Sure. No, that's perfect. I mean, to me, that's perfect. That's yeah. exactly what I need. It's wonderful. All right, man. Good All talking right. to you as always. Likewise. Take care. All right. You too. See you later.